But as we prepare to do that, I'm, I'm sensitive to uh, the nature of this message and the nature of this passage that we have just read. And I want us to pray together for the Lord to hinder any attempts of Satan to snatch away this moment. It is eternity in the balance. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you that through Christ we can praise your name now and we look forward to praising your name forever and ever and ever. We thank you, Lord, that this world is not all. Our hope, our confidence is in a city prepared for us whose builder and maker is God. Oh, Lord, we pray to you who desire all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit that you in this moment from this passage by your grace that you would open eyes to the desperate, desperate need of sealing with absolute assurance our faith in Jesus. And now, Lord, we commit this to you and ask that you will grant to me your spirit and power and most of all that I would not get in the way but that your word would send out light and truth. He asks this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now I want to begin with a question or I want to actually begin with several of them. The first question I'd just like you to consider with me and is simply if you have ever considered exactly what it means to qualify as being rich. And some of you say, no, trust me, I don't qualify. <laughs> and you're quite certain of that. Here's another question. What does it qualify to be considered poor? And how do you measure that? How do you measure what it means to be rich? What it means to be poor? Well, worldwide, it's determined by these. The standard of currency used around the world, the American dollar. How many of these does it take to qualify to be rich? How many does it take? There was a recent survey done about that, interviewed over a thousand people. It was a repeat of a survey that had been done a few years before that. Almost identical results. From 1,000 American adults, it 
was average that it took 2.2 million of these to be considered rich. Now, it took a little bit more for the baby boomers and a little bit less for the millennials, as you would expect. But on average, 2,200,000 of these considered to make one rich. And I thought, well, is that accurate? How many attain to that? I found out, and just doing a little study this week, that if you take the lowest 20% of household incomes in the United States, the lowest 20%, that the median net worth, that is assets and debts combined, the median net worth of the lowest 20% of United States households was $4,715. The highest 20% of American households, the median net worth was $554,700. That gives you an idea of the, the spectrum. It gives you an idea of the separation. But it was considered in this poll that it takes 2.2 million of these to classify someone as being rich. Now, here is a question I would ask. Who made this the scorecard? Who made this the scorecard of what defines rich and poor? Who has the wisdom to define rich and poor for us? Who is trustworthy enough to define rich and poor? Amen. Only one. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows how to define rich and poor. He did it often in his ministry, and he ticked a lot of people off doing it. Jesus, listen carefully, constantly in his ministry, he overturned the money changers' tables. He did it twice in the temple in Jerusalem. But throughout his ministry, Jesus continually turned the value system of this world upside down. Or maybe we should say, right side up. And he's still doing it. Today, Jesus is still changing people's value system. Of what it means to be rich. What it means to be poor. And it is my prayer this morning that in this timeless story from Jesus that Fred read for us that we'll understand and we will determine by the grace of God that we will be rich in the terms Jesus says makes true riches. So this morning I want you to think about this story with me that Jesus told and I want us to consider it under this, this title, Rich Man, Poor Man. 
rich man, poor man. I want us to just walk through it. We'll walk through the story. And Lord willing, we will arrive at God's destination that he has for us. Now, the story is all about contrast. And Jesus constantly did this in his ministry. Luke is the gospel author that captures these moments when Jesus taught by incredible contrast. And here he contrasts two men. Notice here, first of all, he contrasts a rich man and a beggar in this lifetime. He compares a rich man and a beggar in this lifetime. Listen to Jesus as he tells a story beginning verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, let's begin here. Is this a parable that we're reading this morning? Is this a parable or is this an actual account? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Aren't you glad I cleared that up for you? Yes. Now, there are some Bible scholars, teachers that say this is not a parable. And they say it's not a parable because Jesus never uses someone's name in teaching a parable. And he uses the man's name, Lazarus, in this story. But there are other Bible scholars and students that say this is a parable because as you read it, it follows the the traditional pattern of Jesus teaching by parable. And also, there are some descriptions here in the geography of the afterlife that, that don't follow what we know from the rest of Scripture. So there are those that say, this is a parable. Some are saying, no, this is a true account. But the reality is, it doesn't matter whether this is a parable or not, really, because Jesus here is sharing a story that conveys absolute truth. Jesus is sharing absolute truth. Not make-believe. So whether it is a parable, whether it's a true account of two individuals, we have to be careful. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll squint at the set design and we won't watch the play. <laughs> we'll miss the play. Now, there are three main characters in this play, if you want to use that description. There's three main characters. The first is there is this rich man. Jesus calls attention to this man. He's rich. He's fabulously wealthy. He, he wears the color purple, which is a royal color, amazingly expensive. He wears this fine linen under that robe. And this linen is 
comes from a cotton that was only raised in parts of Egypt. So even his wardrobe is just fabulous. He's fabulously wealthy. He's fabulously dressed. And he fabulously parties every day. He just parties every day. He lives in a fabulous house. And his fabulous house has a fabulous ornamental gate. The word for gate here is a special gate. It means a beautiful gate, an ornamental gate. So do you hear the word fabulous? <laughs> He's fabulous. <laughs> now I need to stop here. Why is Jesus describing this man's wealth in such detail? Because according to the view of Jesus' day, even the religious view of Jesus' day, this is considered a good thing because it is a sign of the favor of God. That's what Jesus has been talking about. Wealth and what is the favor of God? What does God delight in? What do people delight in? What are these teachers of Jesus' day sharing with people about God's favor. They're the prosperity preachers of their day. Jesus is turning that whole gospel of money changing upside down. And so he uses this man as an example. Now there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. The Bible does not say that there are not any who are rich who enter the kingdom of God. But the Bible does say there are not many. One wealthy lady once said she was saved by an M. <laughs> the difference between any and many. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with having lots of money. Nothing wrong with being poor. This man is fabulously wealthy. Now, notice the second main character. You cannot have a contrast that's more complete. This man is a beggar. Verse 20. Listen to how Jesus describes him. And at his gate, that is at this rich man's gate, there was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what was left from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, how does Jesus describe the quality of this man's life? Lazarus. What's the quality of his life? Well, we, we learn some characteristics of his life. He is, he's described as disabled. You see, it says he was laid at the gate. He was not even able to walk there. Somebody brought him there, stretched him out. He's disabled. He's disabled, he's destitute, he's described as poor. But the word poor here doesn't mean just your ordinary poverty. It means literally the idea of not having enough to sustain your life. Starving. He is disabled, he's destitute, he's diseased. He's covered with sores. And he's desperate. He's begging, begging every day, begging, begging, even begging just for the scraps, 
just for the things that fall from the table. Just bring, bring the garbage out. Just bring the garbage to me. And he's disregarded. He's right there at the gate. No one practically even notices him. Definitely not the rich man. The rich man comes and goes in his fabulous party life. And he literally has to step over this man who is at his gate. Only creatures that seem to notice him are the dogs who come and lick his sores. Now, what seems cruel irony as you see this man described is his name. His name is Lazarus. The name Lazarus means the Lord has helped me. The Lord has helped. Most people say that's pathetic. Here's a man that everything in his life is so terrible. And yet his name means the Lord has helped. Where's God in this kind of situation? Where's this God? Who this man even carries his name and everything about his life seems to say there's no God who helps. Well, the curtain drops. It's end of Act One. And as the curtain drops, and you're reading this, you're sort of, so to speak, uh, watching the play, the curtain comes down, end of Act One. Which guy do you want to be? Which guy would you want to be of these two? But the play's not over. Because the curtain rises again. And the curtain rises, that is the curtain between this life and the next. And my brothers and sisters, it's a very thin curtain. The curtain rises. On act two, the curtain that divides this life and the life to come. And what do we see? Well, we see the a rich man and a beggar in the next life. But notice it's the same two men, but they have exchanged places. The beggar is rich. And the rich man is the beggar. Verse 22 starts this act. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now what a touching scene that is. Can you imagine that? What a touching scene. Here's Lazarus. In this life, he's unknown... And he's unloved. But in heaven, he is known and he's loved. And here, he experiences at his death the meaning of his name, God has helped. Because the Bible says this, 
Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. It's a precious thing. How precious is it? It's so precious that Lazarus, who dies outside the gate of this rich man, who dies unknown and unloved, is in reality so known and so loved by God that God sends an escort of angels to bring him through the gate of heaven. Wow. He goes to paradise. Now, paradise here is called Abraham's side. Abraham's side. And you need to understand that in the Jewish mindset at that time, that to die in faith was to go to be with your fathers, go to the fathers. The idea of Abraham here is the patriarch of Israel. He is the father of the faithful, of those who believe. And so the expression Abraham's side was an expression which was used in Jesus' day and for hundreds of years previous to that to describe the resting place of the spirits of the righteous after they died. That the spirits of the righteous would leave their bodies and go to rest in paradise with the faithful who have gone before. Abraham being the patriarch of the faithful ones. They called it Abraham's side. Jesus used that term. The beggar died. Notice it doesn't say he was buried. That's not what they did with beggars. They took the body of beggars, dragged them out to the valley of Hinnom, where we get the term, they understand Gehenna, where there's a burning garbage dump the garbage dump of Jerusalem where the Canaanites used to burn their children as sacrifices. It was so abhorred by the people of Israel, they turned it into their garbage dump and the fires burned there day and night. And that's where they would take the body of beggars. He died. Perhaps his body did go on this garbage heap. <laughs> but his spirit was carried to God. Abraham sighed. What a touching scene. But now notice what a tragic scene. Unspeakable tragedy. Look at verse 22. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. Now, again, Jesus is telling a story here. He, he's not telling us about the geography of paradise. That's not his point. Don't press so far into the details. The point is that the beggar died. He went to paradise. And this rich man dies and is buried. And if it stopped there, everybody would say he was still truly rich. 
You can imagine what a funeral was prepared for this rich man. They, they hired professional mourners in those days. You can imagine all the people who were hired to mourn for this man. No doubt he had laid up riches for years to build an incredible tomb, a, 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 an amazing mausoleum for his body. The rich man dies and he's buried, but he's not dead. It's not possible to die and the real you not still be alive. Because into the body of every human being, God has breathed, breathed the breath of life. And every human being is an eternal soul. We have a body for the short journey we make through this dimension. But the real us inhabits this body. And it does not die. This man died physically, but he's not dead. He's conscious. He's conscious that he's in an awful place. An awful place. Jesus said he lifted up his eyes and he's in Hades. Hades. Hades is a Greek word. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Sheol, which means the abode of the dead. The abode of the dead. In the Old Testament, Sheol just meant the grave or the abode of the dead. But in the New Testament, listen carefully. In the New Testament, the word Hades is used for the abode of the dead. But now listen carefully. It's never used in regard to believers. It's always used in regard to unbelievers. Hades in the New Testament is described as a conscious place, an awful place. It is, it's, a, it's the prison for the unsaved souls. It's the prison where they are kept until the day of judgment. Hades, or as we think of hell, is not eternal. The Bible says death and hell will one day be cast into the lake of fire. That is eternal. Hades, or what we usually call hell, is like the jail until the day of judgment. And then the awful place called the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels and for those who follow the devil and his angels. It's an awful place. This man is conscious. Jesus describes him as conscious. He's conscious in suffering. He's suffering in torment. He's, he's conscious of his, his separation. He can, he can see that he's far away from paradise. He's separated from paradise. 
Some people say, well, this is symbolic language. Jesus is using here symbolic language for torment, symbolic language for separation. Well, it's, if it's symbolic language, listen carefully, it's Jesus' language. And if this is symbolic, what must the reality be? Because Jesus was not trying to trick anyone. He was not trying to be deceptive. He was describing the reality of a man who went into eternity lost. And then Jesus, in order to press home the reality of true eternal wealth, he's trying to press home this idea of what really is valuable. He portrays a conversation between the rich man and the third character, Abraham. Abraham. Now, notice what happens in this conversation. The rich man becomes the beggar. He starts begging. He starts pleading with Abraham. What does he plead for? First of all, he pleads for mercy. Mercy. Verse 24. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. He still treats Lazarus like a slave. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water. Just even that. And cool my tongue for I am anguish in this flame. His torments are as the torments of flames of fire. Tormenting not his flesh, but tormenting his spirit. Tormenting his mind. He pleads for mercy. On earth, he feasted every day. Now he's begging for a drop of water. What's the patriarch's answer? How does Abraham answer him? Verse 25. He called out, Father Abraham, mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water. Cool my tongue. I'm anguished in this flame. And here comes Abraham's answer. But Abraham said to him, child... Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in his like manner had things. But now he is comforted. And you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now notice this. Abraham tells us, man, there's no hope. There's no hope in hell. What Jesus is describing here is a place of no hope. There's no hope. There's no mercy. God's mercy is in this lifetime. In the next lifetime, there's justice. Mercy offered now, but those who will not receive mercy and rebel, 
justice. Son, remember. This is justice. There's no mercy in hell. There's no bridge. There's a chasm, meaning paradise and hell are fixed. There's, there's no place in between. There's no purgatory. There, there's no state of transition. It's fixed. There's no bridge. And in hell, there's no exit. There's no exit. There's no escape. It's fixed. It's settled. Abraham's answer confirms in the rich man's mind how utterly hopeless his situation is. For him, his only hope now is for others. And that's his second plea. He knows, I can't get out. But here's my plea. And isn't this interesting? It's the plea of a missionary. <laughs> it's a plea for a missionary. We may not pray for missionaries in church, but they pray for them in hell. Verse 27. And he said then, I beg you, Father... To send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers. So that they, he may warn them that they also not, they not come into this place of torment. I'm here, but I don't want them to come here. See, he has a conscious torment. And he, he has a torment of his conscience. His conscience is tormenting him. If people can't leave here, then send Lazarus. Send him a, send a missionary back from the dead. And listen to the patriarch's answer. Listen to what Abraham said to him, verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. What's Abraham say in this story that Jesus is telling? Abraham says, they have the word of God. They have the Word of God. It is sufficient. They don't need a miracle. They have the miracle. They have the miracle of the Word of God. And the rich man says, no, no. If, if there was a resurrected messenger, if someone was resurrected from the dead, they, they would believe. And, and Abraham, he goes to the heart of the matter here. He, he's, he goes to the heart of the matter. This is Jesus telling the story through Abraham's voice, so to speak. He goes to the heart of the matter and he says, listen. If they won't listen to the word of God, if they won't hear the word of God, they won't repent. Even if there's a miraculous sign of resurrection. Why? Because salvation is not based or accomplished on 
information, it requires transformation. People are not lost because they don't have enough information. People are lost because they're sinners. We're sinners. We're, we're not neutral. We're rebels. And more information is not going to change. And how do we know that? How do we know that? Here's how we know it. Listen carefully. In just a few weeks from this telling this story, Jesus raised a man from the dead. And what was his name? Lazarus. And they, what was the response of the religious leaders? They said, now we're going to kill Lazarus and Jesus. Oh, that's how much information will help change a sinful heart. Oh, you raised him from the dead? We'll kill him again. And will kill the one who raised him from the dead. And if that was not enough, not only did Jesus raise a Lazarus from the dead, it's not long after this, he walked out of his own tomb. He himself rose and overcame the grave. And people began to testify, he is risen from the dead. And what was the religious and cultural response to that? Attack, destroy, suppress. Why? Because it's unbelief. It's not neutrality. It is an unyielded heart. It is an unbowed knee to our maker and king. That's what sin breeds in us. My friend, now this is a question. Have you, have you believed the record? Have you believed the law and the prophets and the gospel and Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection? Have you believed? And I don't mean just believed with your mind that you, yeah, those facts, I accept those facts, but I have true belief. I have faith. I am trusting in this one, Jesus, who died for me and rose again. I have faith in him. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I trust him. Amen. He's my only hope because I'm no better than the rich man. And I'm as needy as this beggar Lazarus. And my only hope is that there is a Savior who came to seek and save the lost, who took my sins on himself on the cross, paid my debt in full, and conquered grave. And has ascended to heaven. He's coming again. And everyone who calls upon him shall be saved. Amen. But my friend, listen. It's now or never. It's now or never. Don't boast of tomorrow. Don't boast of another hour. Today, this moment, you hear the voice of God. Turn to Christ. He will save you. All who come to me, I will never cast them out. But if you are determined to earn it yourself, 
What you will get is what you wanted. If you want to earn it, that's what you're going to get. Not mercy and grace. You'll get justice. And my friend, listen to me. You don't want God to be fair with you. Don't you ever pray that God will be fair with you. You don't want justice. You want grace. <laughs> We're going to have communion. I want you to remember these things as we have communion. Our relationship with money reveals our relationship with God. That's what Jesus had been talking about. Read the context. Our relationship with money reveals our relationship with God. That's Jesus' point. You cannot serve two masters. Love one, love the other. Number two, our eternal riches are not measured by our current circumstances. My friend, I can't imagine what you may be going through or someone in your family may be going through. But let me tell you, what you're going through is not the measurement of what God thinks about you. Here's what God thinks about you. That cross and his son on that cross. There's riches. There's riches. I knelt beside the bed of a man dying yesterday. I knelt by him. He's a rich man. Because recently, he gave his life to Jesus. Oh, he's rich. He's not alone in that room. Heaven is, and hell are real. Life is brief and uncertain. Eternity is long and fixed. God is just and God is gracious. And today is our opportunity and our invitation. Let's bow our heads. Oh, dear friend, today, 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 while the Lord is speaking, will you come to Christ today? Will you trust Him today as your Lord, your Savior? He came to save sinners. He came to save those who were lost. And oh, friend, don't trust in anything other than Jesus Christ and His precious blood. Hear His voice today. Come just as you are. He will not turn you away. You will become incredibly rich today if you are in poverty of your own self-religion. Recognize the rags of everything you're trying to do. Take hold of the riches of Christ right now. He will save you right now, right now. Come to Christ. Would this be your prayer? Lord Jesus, forsaking all, I trust you. Forsaking all, I trust you. Forgive me. I receive you. I repent. I turn to you. Receive me, Lord Jesus. You are my hope. Friend, the Lord has never turned away someone who comes to him in repentance and faith. Come today.